Would you take your Bibles with me this morning and open to Psalm 63. Psalm 63, if you have one of the Red Bibles, Psalm 63 is on page 479. It's a holiday weekend, so we have some members out, but it also marks our students back. And I think the last time you were with us, if you're a student, it may be that we were uh, in Luke's gospel, and we'll get back there uh, here in a few weeks, but we're taking a, a little break through that to look at some psalms, and this morning brings us to Psalm 63. And so I want to ask you one more time, if you're able to stand, so that we can honor the reading of God's holy word this morning. Psalm 63, the superscript, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. And all who swear by him shall exult. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. Would you remain standing as we pray once more? Father, we do not stop and pray at this moment just because we need something to fill the time. We simply want to recognize again that we are in need of you. Father, I am in need of you. You know my weakness better than I do. And I feel like I feel it quite clearly. Would you enable me to preach your word with clarity, with power by the Spirit, so that we might understand and see what Psalm 63 is saying to us, what you have revealed to us here in this text. And I pray for all of us, Lord. We are in need of you to hear and to be moved. My prayer this week has been that our hearts would be changed as we look at this text, and I know that will not happen apart from your Spirit's work. So would you do for us what we desperately need? Use this time to transform us, to make us more like your Son, Jesus Christ, so that we might be honoring to you. And we pray this in his name. Amen. You may be seated. all the way through college and even after college for a good while, if I ever had the opportunity to share my testimony, I marked it in terms of people. 
individuals who had shaped my life. Obviously, uh, being born into a home where my parents uh, became believers right around the time uh, that I was born. And so I grew up with them influencing me, teaching me the gospel and shaping me. I could name friends, individuals who came into my life and simply their, their presence in my life, the conversations I had with them, helping shape me and in my pursuit of following Christ. People can play a powerful role in our lives. And it, it's not even those necessarily with whom we, we go quite close or have deep conversations with. Sometimes people that we've never met and never have conversations with can be used of the Lord to shape us. How many of us can resonate with reading Christian biographies of individuals who have perhaps been with the Lord for decades or centuries and we read of their lives and we are challenged, we are shaped because of who they are and what they've done. We find ourselves yearning to imitate their faith. I think that's how Psalm 63 can work in our hearts this morning. Because what David does in Psalm 63 is he lets us see his heart. He lets us see what's, what's going on within him. He, he unveils his heart to us. But it's not like what we saw last week in Psalm 55 where, where he unveils his struggles and fears and anxieties. In this text, actually what David shows, for us, shows us is his longing for the Lord the satisfaction he finds in God, the hope he finds in his Lord. And it may be that as we look at Psalm 63 and as we see David's longing and satisfaction and hope in the Lord, it may be that we can't relate to what we see. It may be that simply what we read here is not our experience. Or maybe it's something that we say, that once did characterize me, but it doesn't anymore. That kind of longing, that kind of satisfaction, that kind of desire to, to treasure and know fellowship with God above all else, simply is no longer true of me. It may be, as one author has said, we've nibbled so long at the table of this world that our souls are stuffed with small things. And I don't think we can look at this psalm and say, well, perhaps what we see here is, is an example of super Christianity, right? Uh, David is just so radical that you and I should absolutely read this psalm and say, I can't relate. David's longing for the Lord, satisfaction for the Lord, hope in the Lord. It, it should be above us because this is David for crying out loud. He's so exceptional. But I simply don't think that's the case. I mean, if we think of the differences between us and the time in which David has written this, we have every reason to be more eager and earnest in our longing for God. We, after all, know that God sent his son. He was named Jesus, and he lived a perfect life, died on the cross, was, was raised from the dead on the third day. Details that David could not have spelled out for us as clearly as we can. All of us have the spirit of God dwelling within us moving us so that we recognize God is our Father and can cry out to Him, Abba, Father, as Paul writes in the book of Galatians. And we're familiar with Jesus' teaching that Clint read earlier, that the greatest commandment that you and I have been given as believers is that we love the Lord with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind. With that commandment before us, can we genuinely say, I don't think we should long for the Lord as David did. 
or find as much satisfaction in God as he did? Or hope in God the way that David does here? Absolutely, we should find ourselves saying, Psalm 63 should be something that we, at worst, imitate in David. So what I'm going to lay out for you right now is my hope for us looking at Psalm 63 and then the method I want to take to get there. So here's my hope. My hope is if that longing that we see in Psalm 63 that David has, if that has grown dormant in your heart and you simply can't relate to that, your, your life is not characterized by a desperation that says, I must know greater fellowship with God or I don't think I'll make it. If your life is not characterized by that, my prayer is that Psalm 63 would awaken our souls. If that has gone dormant, that's looking at this psalm would awaken us so that what characterizes David in this psalm will indeed characterize us. And here's the method that I want to take to get there. Let me explain it to you by painting a picture. Imagine there's a couple who is married. They're both, both professing believers, but in their marriage, things have grown quite stale. In some ways, they're just kind of living separate lives while living in the same house. Their conversation has grown quite weak. Um, yeah, they, they talk to each other in a cordial way, and, but even those sometimes conversations can escalate into, into a bit of bitterness. Now, there might not be any great animosity between the two, but nor is there any kind of affection, no, no kind of desire to say, we want to live in this home in a way that pictures the gospel of Jesus Christ so that you can see how a husband is to love his wife, how a wife is to respect her husband. That's grown quite stale, and so they've just grown content with their marriage as is, two separate people living together. And then one night, they're invited to an anniversary party. A couple is celebrating her 50th wedding anniversary, and this couple goes. And as they go in, their interaction with the couple is very minimal in the terms of conversation. They, they say congratulations and then just kind of walk on. But they spend the evening looking at this couple who's been married 50 years as they engage with others. And they, they see when they look at them how they adore one another. They see how they enjoy one another. They see how they engage with one another in a kind and gracious way. And so on their way home, one of them says to the other, I want what they have. And I'm willing to do whatever I need to do to make it happen. And the other spouse says, I thought the same thing. When I saw them, my heart was just burning within me to say, why isn't my home like that? And so they spend the evening repenting of their sins, forgiving one another and, and, and charting out what their lives are going to look like as they move forward by the Lord's grace in a way that pictures the gospel in their home. That kind of, of transformation that, that described in that couple didn't come from going to a marriage seminar. It didn't even come from, from a great conversation with people saying, here's how you do it all. It simply came because they looked at how another couple was doing this well, and it awakened their souls. It caused these dormant desires to wake up. That's what I pray Psalm 63 does for us. 
as we look at David and perhaps see something that we can't relate to, maybe something that we at one time could relate to but can't anymore, that simply looking at him and seeing someone will make us say, I want that to characterize me as well. And I'm willing to do whatever is necessary to make sure that what characterizes David characterizes me as well. So I just want to show you in the text then, it kind of breaks down, I think, quite easily into three different sections, verses 1 through 4, verses 5 through 8, and verses 9 through 11. And so I simply want to show us then three things that Psalm 63 shows us about David as we look at the portrait that he gives us of himself here. And the first one is David's earnest desire for the Lord. David's earnest desire for the Lord. I noted before we read the psalm that the superscript says this is a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Now, we don't know exactly when this was in David's life, that he was outside of Jerusalem, away from his home, out in the wilderness. Some would suggest it may be that this is a time in David's life when Saul was king and, and Saul was trying to kill him. David was often fleeing from Saul, even going out in the wilderness. The reason I don't think that exactly fits is because of verse 11. When David ends the psalm, he speaks of the king rejoicing when David is delivered. Now, the only king who came before David was Saul. So if David is out in the wilderness, fleeing from Saul, and envisions a day when those who are chasing him, those who are after him, those who are enemies of God are judged so that the king will rejoice, well, that just doesn't work, right? And nor can David be speaking of any king after him because the kings after him only come once David is dead. And so David, I think in Psalm 63 verse 11, is simply speaking about himself. I am the king and I will rejoice. So I think this is a psalm not written when David is, is prior, that's a period prior to him becoming king, when Saul is after him. I think this is a time when David already is king. So there's one other time that, that perhaps seems most obvious, and it's when David's own son Absalom was raised up against David, seeking to, to rid the kingdom of his father, to dethrone David, to overtake him, and during that time, David flees from Jerusalem as well. So it could be any other time, but it seems like something like that fits the text. David has been forced away from Jerusalem, and he's out in the wilderness. Now, that's key for us as we look at the psalm for a few reasons. One, when David says things like making reference to the land being dry and thirsty, I don't think it's because he just was thinking, oh, what's a good illustration of this? I think it's probably because he was in a dry and thirsty land. He's in the wilderness looking around at, at this, this dry area where the land is crying out for water and he uses it as a picture of how he feels in his soul. But the more important reason perhaps we need to keep in mind that David is in the wilderness as he writes the psalm is because what it means is that he is away from Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is the place where God set up his tabernacle, a tent-like structure where God would manifest his presence among the people, where the people would worship God. So David is removed from that. He's out in the wilderness. It might be somewhat comparable, although I think it's even more here the case. It might be somewhat comparable if you can imagine yourself being picked up and taken away from the church. 
so that you imagine a people of God gathering and worshiping, but you're not with them. You're away. This is somewhat perhaps the picture that we have in Psalm 63. David away from the tabernacle, away from the the worship of God, away from the place where God would manifest his presence, and he's out in the wilderness. And as he's out in the wilderness, he finds his heart longing for God. So he writes in verse 1, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. As David looks around him and sees the ground itself thirsting, he says, that's a picture of my heart. My, my, my flesh, uh, it's, it's as if my flesh is fainting because it has no water, but it's all those physical images are really just a picture of his soul. His soul thirsts. He longs for, for rich fellowship with God. He wants to know God more and delight in God more and enjoy God more and fear, experience fellowship with the Lord more, but he's feeling distant And therefore, David says, God, I will earnestly seek you. And that's what he does in verses 2 through 4. In 2 through 4, David fleshes out how he's seeking the Lord, how he's pursuing fellowship with God to experience again the joy of his presence. He says in verse 2, so I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. It may be that David's doing one of two things here. It could be that David is just imagining himself back in the tabernacle in the sanctuary looking up at the Lord's glory. It may be that he's just simply imagining it, or it may be that he's remembering what it was like when he was back in Jerusalem, back among the people of God, back to the place where God was manifesting his presence, and he worships, but he remembers what God is like. In verse 3, he, he meditates on God's steadfast love. He writes, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. One of the chief ways that God reveals himself to his people in the Old Covenant is he shows himself as the one who has steadfast love. That is, he is faithful in loving his people. Uh, Some have translated this steadfast love as loyal love. God is faithful in loving us, which is an amazing testimony because I think all of us could say One of the ways that we could characterize our walk with God is at times filled with faithlessness. We are sometimes less than faithful, and David was as well. Uh, Read his life, and we remember of his sins, of uh, committing sins uh, against Uriah, sleeping with his wife, or having Uriah killed, and other things. Uh, But David is thinking about, he's meditating on God's steadfast love, how God is faithful to him, and it moves David's heart so that he declares, I will praise the Lord. My lips will praise you, or verse 4, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. Lifting up one's hands is a, a picture that the old covenant gives us of worshiping the Lord. David is declaring, God, I long for you, I seek you, therefore I'm going to think about who you are, I'm going to remember times when I have longed for you and worshipped you and found satisfaction in you, and I am going to praise you. Now here's what's quite interesting about what David describes in verses 1 through 4. David is in the wilderness. If the setting that we've charted is correct, And it may very well be that David has been chased out of his city 
and chased from his throne by his own rebellious son. So he's away from his house, he's away from the throne, he's away from the peace and comforts that his life knows, and out there in the wilderness, the thing that he says, this is what I thirst for, this is what I feel like I'm going to faint if I don't have, is deeper fellowship with God. Now the reason, of course, David feels this way is because David has a relationship with God. Uh, Note in verse one, he says, oh God, you are my God. Now, I think we understand this, but let me just spell it out in a very simple way. One of the ways that we develop love for one another, close binds with one another, is we walk through the events of life together. So we go through sorrow, and we go through sorrow with these people. Think maybe of your small group gathering where you, where you share requests, you hear their struggles, and, and all of a sudden you know this individual has serious surgery coming up, and you find yourself praying for them. You're walking with them. You're anxious for them. Uh, then they come through surgery, and all goes well, and you rejoice with them. Or, or this person has a child who's, who's straying from the Lord, and you pray, and the Lord may bring them back, and you walk through these sorrows and these joys together. And as you experience that, it, it binds you together because that is what relationships look like. Well, this is how David has walked with the Lord. You can look at the Psalms and know that. When David has found himself in times of struggles and fears, he's walked with the Lord. He's shared those. He's cried out. We saw that last week in Psalm 55. When he finds times of great joy and relief in his life, he praises God. He he lives a life of relationship with God. And so that when he finds himself now cast out of the city, the thing that he desperately longs for, his earnest desire is for the Lord. And so let me ask us, is this true of us? Would you say that your life is filled with a longing for the Lord? If you found yourself in a position like David, where your house was taken away, you're removed from other comforts of life, perhaps from the nice job or powerful position that David had, would you say, you know what my soul is thirsting for? Not to get the house, not to get the powerful position, not to get the great job or whatever it is. My soul longs for the Lord. If your soul doesn't earnestly desire for the Lord, if you don't find your soul craving deeper fellowship with God to know Him more and enjoy Him more, delight in His more and more, experience His presence in your life more, It may be because when those desires have come up within you, because I think they do come up in the life of a believer who's indwelt by the Spirit. It may be because when those desires have come up, you have ignored them. Or it may be that you stuffed them down by pursuing the busyness of life. And you found yourself pursuing busyness and other things so much instead of pursuing the Lord. It's as if you're drowning out your hunger for God. And I don't think, and I think this can be a temptation of ours, I don't think we're able to say, well, somebody that really yearns for God to know him more like that, that's something that describes immature Christians. Right? Maybe, maybe you're tempted to say, you know, that's something I knew earlier in my Christian life, but now I've, I've, I've matured. I've grown up, I've settled into a different place. I think what we've settled into is pursuing lesser things. 
because it simply cannot be said when the greatest commandment God has given us is to love him, that it's okay for us to find our souls not longing for deeper fellowship with God. And so it may be that one of the things you and I need to do today is to cultivate what David longs for here, to ask God, Lord, aid me, create a hunger in my soul to know you more. And when I feel that hunger, I'm not going to ignore it. I'm not going to pursue lesser things, to fill myself as, if you will, on junk food or empty calorie foods. No, no, God, I'm going to get on my knees and cry out to know you more. Get over your word and long for fellowship with you more. We see David's earnest desire for the Lord. Second, we see David's satisfaction in the Lord. David's satisfaction in the Lord. In verses five through eight, what David does is he begins contemplating what's going to happen in his soul as he pursues the Lord, as he earnestly desires and seeks the Lord. He says in verses five and six, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. David's imagining himself lying on his bed thinking about who God is. Specifically, what he's meditating on, verse 7, he says, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. So, So David meditates on how God has helped him, how God has always been present and cared for him and walked with him through life. And David says, as I do that, as I think about your kindness to me, your faithfulness to me, how you've helped me and provided for me, it's going to rouse David's soul to worship. He's going to find himself saying, I cannot help but sing for joy with my lips. Why? Because verse 5 says, his soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. He envisions knowing deeper fellowship with God as being the most satisfying thing in the world, as if he's feeding his soul the very thing it most needs. He imagines, just as we imagine physically, when you are very, very hungry, and you have not only food that fills you, but great food that fills you. Fat and rich food. Right? The kind of food, perhaps, that you're like, maybe I should avoid that for my health. David says, no, 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 not on this occasion. Eat, and it's so good, and it fills you. David says, that's what I'm going to know as I meditate on the Lord. A kind of satisfaction where you push yourself back from the table and say, good grief, that was good. David says, I'm going to know that. In fact, it seems, according to verse 8, as if he's taken hold of the Lord and he's saying, I will not let you go until I know that. Verse eight, my soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. It's as if David says, I've taken hold of you, Lord. I want to know satisfaction in you. I will not let go of my pursuit of you until, until my soul is satisfied as if eating fat and rich food. And David recognizes, he wants to make clear, this this isn't me taking hold of God as if the work is all mine. No, no, the end of verse 8. It's God's hand that upholds me. It's his grace that's even leading me to pursue him. But nonetheless, David pursues God. He wants to know what it's like 
to be satisfied, as if he's tasted it before and he wants it again. And again, David speaks this way in the wilderness, being removed from everything. And the thing that he knows will satisfy him most is fellowship with the Lord. And so, let me ask us if we can relate to this. What satisfies your soul? What is it in your life that enables you to say, oh, now I'm satisfied. Now I'm at rest. Do we find that only in having sufficient money to be able to plan for things, perhaps in work going smoothly or relationships going well? David finds it in the Lord. So, has this been your experience? When, when I describe this to you, is this foreign to you or do you understand, can you relate to David's experience of saying, God so powerfully made himself known to me and I fellowshiped with him so deeply that I found a satisfaction in my soul that surpasses all earthly goods. That's what David has envisioned. Have you found yourself meditating on how God has been your help? How he has cared for you and satisfied you to the point that you're so overwhelmed that you cannot help but open your mouth and sing for joy? That's what David describes. Have you found your longing so deep to know God more that you feel like you are Jacob having taken hold of God and saying, we will wrestle all night until you bless me? Have you found yourself pursuing God like that? God, I am here until you satisfy my soul. If you can't relate to that again, my prayer is that our souls would be awakened to say, this is what I long for. Or if you've known that before and you do not know it now, it may be then that you need to set aside some time in prayer not just to run through a list of some things, but to say, God, earnestly, I'm seeking you. I want to know fellowship with you and delight in you more. David has shown us this earnest desire for the Lord. He's shown us his satisfaction in the Lord. And finally, we see David's hope in the Lord. David ends the psalm with great confidence. It's as if David has read the end of the story in his life. He knows how this is going to turn out. If indeed it's, it's Absalom pursuing him and, and, and he's away from the throne and enemies are chasing him and hoping that he is killed. David in verses 9 through 11 paints this picture of absolute trust that things are going to work out well. Listen to what he says. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for the jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. David ends a psalm saying, just let me tell you how this is going to end. All my enemies are going to be destroyed. Those who are lying about me, God's going to shut up their mouths. I, the king, I'm going to rejoice, and all who are following me and swear by me, who, who walk uh, following my reign and submitting themselves to my rule, they're going to rejoice as well. It's like, could say what verses 9 through 11 teach us is we just need to have confidence. Well, we're going to get that job. 
right? The cancer's gonna go away. But we know that's just not true, always. So how is it that David prays this way? What's he doing? I think the best I can figure out is that verses 9 through 11 represent David trusting in the promises of God. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. In 2 Samuel 7, God had promised David that what happened to Saul would not happen to him. God had made Saul king, but then God removed his love from Saul in that sense. He removed him from the throne, and then God makes a promise to David in 2 Samuel 7 saying, I will not remove my steadfast love from you, unlike Saul. It's going to abide on you. I've put you on the throne, and you will remain there. You, you will always have a son on the throne, and your son will, will rule over my kingdom forever. Ultimately, we, we said this on Christmas Day as we looked at Psalm 72 together, that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the son of David, who was born of the Virgin Mary and, and reigns as God's king and will reign forever. He is David's son, the Messiah, who reigns forever. But David was able to hold on to a specific promise, I think. And at this point, I think he looks around and says, God has promised I'll be king, and God has promised he will not remove my line from the throne. Therefore, if enemies are threatening my throne, even if it looks like they're successful, even if it looks like they're outnumbering us and we have no hope, I know how this is going to end, because I trust in the promise of God. They're going to be defeated, I'm going to rejoice, and those who are faithful to me as their king will rejoice as well. This is just a case of David, I think, trusting in the promises of God. Not unlike Abraham in Genesis 22, Abraham does the same thing. Remember, Abraham, God comes to him and says, take your son, your only son Isaac, and sacrifice him to me. Kill him. And Abraham does it. Right? He takes Isaac and heads off to sacrifice him, to, to kill his son. What in the world was Abraham thinking? Well, Hebrews tells us what Abraham was thinking. What Abraham was thinking was, God has promised that he will multiply my seed as the sand on the shore and as the stars in the sky, and he's going to do it through my offspring. And so, if God has made that promise and God will fulfill that promise, then nothing I do can affect that promise. So if God's told me to sacrifice Isaac, I'll sacrifice him. It may be that God has to raise him from the dead. So be it. God will do it because God's going to fulfill his promise. Now, of course, Abraham didn't have to go all the way to sacrifice Isaac because the Lord stopped him. But Abraham trusted in the promises of God without question, even to the point of being willing to sacrifice Isaac. I think that's exactly what David's doing here. He trusts in the promises of God, and it gives him great hope in the midst of a great struggle in his life. Now, where we then apply this is not in knowing how the specifics of our life will work out. We're not in a position where we can say, God has made a promise that I'm not gonna lose my job. So all my, although my boss said to come see him Monday and prepare to look for another job, he's not gonna fire me. No, we can't have that kind of hope. But what we can do, just like David did, is we can trust confidently in the promises that God has given us. And I think the temptation for us is to underestimate that. I think the temptation for us is to say, unless we have specific promises like, you are going to get the great job, you are going to get the amazing spouse, your children are going to be perfectly obedient, 
right? Unless we have those kinds of promises, we find ourselves always in turmoil. But the reality is, we've been given so many promises. This last week, I met with a brother, and he was in a place where, where, where he was struggling, where it looked like so much of his life had been stripped away, and he didn't know what was to come. He didn't know how he was going to provide for his family. And I wasn't able to sit down with him and say, oh, I can assure you, you're going to get a great job soon. I wasn't able to say this is precisely how money will come into the account. But you know what I was able to do? We were able to sit together and just speak of the promises of God that we know to be true. So I sat with them and I said, the Lord loves you and will not allow anything, even what's going on in your life right now, to separate you from the love he has for you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. He will use this in your life for good, to make you more like his son, Jesus Christ. In fact, as he charted out your life, ordaining good works that you would walk in them, he wrote down every day of your life before it had been lived, including this one, this one that you wished hadn't come. And not only that, but he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And as we like to joke around in the office, and all the money too. It may be the utility company will not take a cow, but God owns cattle and money. And God knows what we need. In fact, as a loving Heavenly Father, He says, I know what you need before you ask. And all those things that you could be anxious about, what you will wear, what you will eat, what you will drink, what you will put on, where you will live. He says, don't be anxious about those things like the pagans are. Rather, seek first my kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. That's just a sample of some of the things that we said together, and he was strengthened in the Lord. I was strengthened in the Lord. I needed those same reminders too. So, so oftentimes, instead of saying to ourselves, well, I don't know how this specific incident is going to work out, and therefore I find that I'm going to be filled with anxiety and I cannot trust the Lord. What we should do instead is say, what do I know? What has God told me? And let the depth of his promises take root in our hearts so that we hope in him. That's what David's doing in verses 9 through 11. He simply had some specific promises, but he was trusting and hoping in the promises of God nonetheless. And whenever I think of resting in the promises of God, it reminds me of a letter Luther wrote to Melanchthon. I'm tempted to say it's my favorite letter, but I think everything that Luther's written at some point or another, I said, that's my favorite letter. I love Martin Luther. In a very difficult time in my own life, I bought a book called Luther, Letters of Spiritual Counsel. And daily I would read the Bible and I would read Luther. And if there's an event in your life that you're suffering through or struggling through, Luther's, Luther's probably experienced it. Have you lost children? Luther lost children. Did the emperor say he wanted to kill you? That's, no, no, just kidding. That, that's exclusive to Luther, right? Um, but he goes through these incidents and he writes letters. And, and, and one letter that Luther wrote, he wrote to Melanchthon, a, a guy who was his understudy uh, named Philip. And what had happened is the work of the Reformation is going on, and Philip is growing very anxious and actually very depressed. And the reason why is because there's a man in high authority that has come out and said, what Luther is teaching 
And what Philip Melanchthon is teaching is heresy. Of course, it's not heresy. It was just that we're justified, that we're declared righteous by faith in Christ alone. It was the gospel. But when this leader came out and said what these men are teaching is heresy, Melanchthon just found his soul undone. I mean, you can imagine. We find ourselves anxious about much lesser things. Imagine in our kind of situation, if the governor of Tennessee named you by name, you know, what you're saying is wrong. That's heresy. And turns all kinds of people against you when you're simply trying to fight for the, for the glory and the cause of the gospel of Christ. And so Melanchthon was gripped with anxiety, dread, depression. He began spiraling. So Luther wrote him a letter. And I want to read you a portion of that letter, a good little portion, um, because I think it's so good for us to hear and remember. Here's what Luther writes to Melanchthon. With all my heart, I hate those cares by which you state that you are consumed. They rule your heart, not on account of the greatness of the cause, but by reason of the greatness of your unbelief. The same cause existed in the time of John Huss and many others, and they had a harder time of it than we do. Luther's making reference there to John Huss, who lived a hundred years before him, argued for the sake of the gospel, and they burned him at the stake. So Luther says, he had it harder than we did. The Lord sustained him. He continues, great though our cause is, its author and champion is also great, for the cause is not ours. Why then are you constantly tormenting yourself? If our cause is false, let us recant. But if it is true, why should we make him a liar who has given us such great promises and who commands us to be confident and undismayed? I too am sometimes downcast, but not all the time. What good do you expect to accomplish by these vain worries of yours? What more can the devil do than slay us? Yes, what? I beg you, who are so pugnacious against everything else, fight against yourself, your own worst enemy, for you furnish Satan with too many weapons against yourself. I pray for you very earnestly, and I'm deeply pained that you keep sucking up cares like a leech, and thus rendering my prayers vain. Christ knows whether it comes from stupidity or the Spirit, but I, for my part, am not very much troubled about our cause. Indeed, I'm more hopeful than I expected to be. God, who is able to raise the dead, is also able to uphold our cause when it is falling, or to raise it up again when it has fallen, or to move it forward when it is standing. If we are not worthy instruments to accomplish His purpose, He'll find others. If we are not strengthened by His promises, where in all the world are the people to whom these promises apply? But more of this another time. After all, my writing this is like pouring water into the sea. The question that Luther asked Melanchthon, I want to ask us as well. If the promises that God has given us in the Bible don't apply to us, then where are the people in this world to whom they apply? And so let us hope in him. Why would we make him a liar? who has given us such great promises. We are people who should find ourselves earnestly longing for the Lord, 
crying out to know him more, fellowship with him more, enjoy him more, delight in him more, love him more, because the greatest commandment he's given us is that we love the Lord with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We are people who should find our satisfaction in God, not chasing after the same things the world chases after, thinking that those things will satisfy our soul when they can't do it. Find our satisfaction in God, and we are those who should be characterized by hope in the Lord. Though everything crumble around us, we should say, I will trust in the promises of God. And one of the reasons that we know we can trust in His promises is because He's already met our greatest need. I know the temptation is to say, I don't know how I'll pay my bills and fret. The reality is, you were on your way to hell without the ability to do anything about it. And God intervened and saved you. Sending his own son, not sparing his son, but saying, I will send my own son to save my people. If he did that, why in the world would we not hope and trust in him? And so that's one of the reasons we have this meal every week, so that we might be reminded that in our deepest need, he supplied for us, he cared for us. And it wasn't because we asked him to, it's because he did it in his love and grace for us when we were very unlovely and not worthy of his kindness. And so this morning, my prayer is that Psalm 63, this picture of David, would cause us to say, I want to be characterized like David was characterized here. And may we find ourselves a people, Cornerstone Community Church, filled with people who earnestly desire and seek after God, who find satisfaction in God, and who hope and trust in God. And let's make that our prayer and our declaration this morning as we come to the table. Now, we're going to come to the table this morning as we do each week, a time of silence before we come that'll let the musicians come forward, some pastors get in place to serve. Also, perhaps an opportunity for you just to spend some time in silent prayer. Then we're going to come to the table row by row. The first row will come exiting from the outside of each row. We'll come around. There will be a pastor here who will serve you. Uh, you'll just take one stack of two cups. The bottom one has bread. The top one has juice. You'll take that, return to your seat to the inside of your row. The second row will follow. third row will follow, so on and so forth. If you're to my left in this area, there will be a pastor over there. You'll do the same thing. Then we'll return to our seat, and together, we'll corporately, as brothers and sisters in Christ, who love one another, who have linked arms with one another as we pursue the celestial city, we'll remind one another together that Christ has shed his blood, given his body for us, and we'll eat and we'll drink together, encouraging one another to seek him, to be satisfied in him, and to hope in him. If you're not a believer this morning, I want to plead with you to place your faith in Jesus Christ. I've said this morning that we should hope and trust and rest in God, but if you're not a believer and you never repent of your sins and place your faith in the crucified and risen Jesus Christ, then you have something incredibly to be anxious about. You are simply waiting for the day when his judgment will fall and it will be a merciless judgment of eternal hell. So if you don't know Christ this morning, I want to plead with you. Repent of your sins and place your faith in him. If you would like to talk to me, maybe the neighbor sitting beside you, how can I know Christ? We would love to talk to you more about that. Seek us after the service. We would love to talk to you 
And I want to plead with you to come to Christ. If you're a believer this morning in good standing with the gospel preaching church, would you come to the table with us? Let's take a moment of silence now as we prepare to come.